0: This episode features author Michael Finkel. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co op, the brand who helps get you outside through gear, classes, and adventures. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy the show. Have you ever wanted to be alone in the woods? What about being alone for 27 years? Why would someone do this? How would they do it? Especially without lighting a fire or talking to a single soul in Maine where it's well below freezing in winter. Well, Michael Finkel is a curious and accomplished journalist with a penchant for stories about people who would do something like this or people who lie on the fringe and live with less. Michael was a New York Times journalist He was fired for doing a story about allegations of slavery on the cocoa plantations of West Africa, where he combined quotes of several shy boys, which isn't allowed in journalism. I tell you this because no one is perfect. Michael's totally open about this. And the day he was fired, something wild happened. He learned a man on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitive list, a man who was accused of horrific murders, had just been arrested in Mexico, and that murderer had been telling people his name was Michael Finkel and that he was a writer for The New York Times. Michael wrote the murderer a letter when the murderer was in jail, and they had this really disturbing two-year correspondence. It resulted in a book, True Story, which was later optioned by Brad Pitt's production company and adapted into the 2015 motion picture, also called True Story, which starred James Franco, Jonah Hill as Michael Finkel, and Felicity Jones. Later, Michael began working for National Geographic magazine. He spent time with field scientists on a volcano in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He was in caves filled with artifacts from Nepal, and he's been in the malaria-ravaged regions of Zambia. Michael's originally from Montana. He skied all over the world for stories, traveled to Tibet to seek mushrooms that can be worth more than gold. He's written about odd sports for Sports Illustrated, and he's covered the last remaining hunter-gatherer tribes in Tanzania, among writing some other amazing stories. Just a few years ago, however, he found this story we're talking about in depth today. He wrote a book about it, and it's called The Stranger in the Woods The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. It's a book I couldn't put down. I read it in one sitting. It's so good. It's about a man named Christopher Knight, why he went into the woods in his early 20s, stayed for so long, and how he not only survived, but how this one man thrived for 27 years in the woods. We also talk about writing, about truth, about getting the story, and so much more. Michael is a lover of the outdoors and a fantastic storyteller. Enjoy. All right, Michael, thanks for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. So let's just start with Stranger in the Woods. You know, for those who haven't read it, maybe you could just take us into the book, give us a little glimpse about what it's about and how you came to write it.
1: So the Stranger in the Woods, first of all, I'm really honored and happy to be here. The book, The Stranger in the Woods, is a biography of a man named Christopher Knight. He's not famous. He's not the leader of any company. He is a hermit. He spent 27 years living completely alone in the woods of Maine. Now, there's a big asterisk over that statement. Now, when I say alone, I mean not just alone. He never lit a single fire, which is for any outdoors person out there who has any remote idea of what it's like in winter in Maine. That is, let's just call that unbelievable, but also at the same time true. He never lit a fire for fear that smoke would give his campsite away. And also for food and survival supplies and clothing and batteries and lots and lots of books. He broke into, yes, he stole from a series of cabins that were along the shores of several ponds. In central Maine, not far from his campsite. That's the base.
0: (laughs) The book just like the whole time I couldn't put it down. I had so many questions like, like how did he shower? How did he like? How did he not want to talk to people? So how how did? Let's start with how you found the book. Like how how you found this character?
1: Yeah, I mean, I am always uh, I'm very fortunate. I've been a journalist for a very long time. I don't have any specific subject I like to write about. I do write about the outdoors a lot, but basically it's whatever grabs me in a certain, whatever twangs my journalistic twanger, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, I sometimes just cruise around and read less small town papers. I spent most of my life in Bozeman, Montana, and there's the Bozeman daily Chronicles always been a source of fascination to me. And then sometimes I just cruise around in the internet looking at small papers and I Read a very small story in the Kennebec County Journal of uh, Central Maine, basically outlining that a person had just been arrested uh, for stealing. He was at a a summer camp that was closed for the season, stealing like hamburger meat and cheese and minor things. And it turns out he said he had been living in the woods for nearly 30 years, had never had a conversation with another person, never made a telephone call, never spent any money, never drove in a car, never used an indoor toilet. As I mentioned, never lit a fire and was put in jail for stealing. And I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. And when I found out that he had stolen lots and lots of books, you know, at first I'm like, ah, this guy might just be crazy. But then I'm thinking, all these books he stole, I wonder. And I just waited for weeks wondering what this guy would say. And I kept looking on the newspaper's website and Chris Knight, the hermit, said nothing. And after several weeks, I was like, I cannot stop thinking about this guy. It, it just sort of touched me in many places. I ha- I love outdoors. I love my solitude. I also have three little kids and a busy life, as many of us do. And I my the amount of solitude I can find is ever shrinking, as it is for many of us. And uh, I, I decided one evening after my wife and children were asleep to write him a letter by hand, old-fashioned way, paper, pen, envelope, stamps. And I mailed it to the Kennebec County Jail, where he was Staying, and as sometimes I say to my great surprise, but in this weird way it's not it's I wouldn't have written the letter if I never thought he would write back, but eh. anyway, a couple of weeks later, in my mailbox, there was a return note from Christopher Knight, and that was the start
0: and so you go to the jail and and you actually get to talk to him and you you learn a little bit. I, I mean, he seems like such a fascinating character. Did you ever decide like, was he crazy? Is he on the spectrum? Like, is there, did they ever make any conclusions about why he did what he did?
1: Right. Just the basics of Chris Knight's life, which is that he left the world at age 20, extremely young, and lived completely by himself. He says he never even spoke one word out loud to himself. And I talk to myself, you know, all the time in the shower, just walking around my house. He never spoke a word to himself out loud, never got advice from an elder after the age of 20, and wasn't. He he didn't even come out voluntarily. He planned to stay out. So he wasn't captured until he was 47. Think about that. The age is 20 to 47. That's pretty much the heart of your life. Before that, you're basically a kid. And after that, you're a middle-aged person. And he spent that entire time completely alone. So everybody listening to this is like, yeah, crazy, autism, Asperger's, something like that. Wonder what's wrong with him. And that's a very natural thing to think, that's what I thought. And um, you know, upon meeting him, first of all, and uh, exchanging letters for several months, and then meeting with him in jail, I think I met with him nine times, it was clear that Chris Knight is highly intelligent. Uh, I don't know if there's a specific definition of genius, but he probably qualifies for it. And he was examined by one uh, state psychologist who proffered a few ideas, Asperger's, as you may have guessed, and there was just no diagnosis that fit him perfectly well. And it, it, the more I also spoke to several other psychologists and n- no one really could put a put a label on him. It's it's Chris Knight himself said that he didn't even he didn't feel that, you know, half of these psychological labels are just a name slapped to a set of symptoms. And, and, and actually after listening to Chris Knight speak for quite a while and very intelligently and quite insightfully, sometimes I wonder if it's not Chris Knight that's crazy, if it's the rest of us. Mm.
0: Yeah. You know, and thank you for saying that. But but one of the, I think we all have this like innate desire to just be alone in the woods for a long time, but we're social creatures. So that's really hard for us. One of the things I found so fascinating in the book is how handy he was and how, how disciplined he was to just survive. This was Maine, and winter in Maine is freezing cold. So can you talk a little bit about the survival? I mean, I know it was necessity to survive, but some of the things he did that just showed his massive survival skills and sort of what you really need to survive for 27 years in the woods in cold Maine.
1: Yeah. So there's so many parts of this story that are very difficult to believe. But this survival aspect is fascinating to me, especially solo survival. I think Chris Knight was blessed with a couple of things. One, I mentioned that he was a smart guy. And it wasn't just sort of this book smart, though he did read a lot. He had like a very impressive ability to figure out solutions to quite difficult problems. So here's a couple of things that uh, sort of struck me as hard to believe. One, like how could you go 27 years without ever seeing a doctor? Or how could you... Again, not lighting a fire. And I, and I asked him, we got to go through the, the, the specifics and the details of his survival were were fascinating. For water, he had a whole system of tarps in place where he would capture rainwater and he would try and keep it as clean as possible. And once it got dirty, he could boil it to make tea or do his laundry, which he did for preventing frostbite. it's And again, the winters in Maine, like when you say freezing, freezing would be balmy weather. In winter, it's below freezing for mm. months and months and months at a time. It's, it's somehow, sometimes as low as like negative 25 Fahrenheit. And again, no fire. And I asked him like if he just did a sort of human hibernation or if he just like tucked himself into multiple sleeping bags and sort of held himself in the fetal position all night. And he said to me, this is absolutely incorrect. What Chris Knight did. Now, he wasn't really aware of what year it was or even the month very often, but he knew the hour and the minute he had taken a few analog watches and he always made sure that he went to bed about 730 at night in the winter and woke up at about 330 in the morning, which is about the depth of cold. He knows that uh, if you stay in your tent in very, very, very cold weather, you know, the body, no matter how cold it is, produces condensation. And it's that condensation that freezes on, you know, starting at your fingers and toes You know, hyperthermia marches like a, like an invading army to your heart and kills you. He got out of bed every winter evening at three 30 in the morning and paced the small perimeter of his campsite. And I'm just picturing this like, you know, when you or I would just be like the the absolute coldest and just not want to even think about leaving our sleeping bag, he got up and paced around and around and around all night, every night for 27 winters and uh, never lost so much as a toenail to frostbite. And that's just one example of, you know, his sort of methodology. And, you know, there's obviously wrapped up in that story in an incredible show of mental toughness and physical discipline. He was like the perfect person to pull off a feat like he did.
0: And his family was pretty handy and skilled from what I remember from your book. Like they had their own greenhouse. So he had a little bit of knowledge before he went in.
1: Yeah. Chris Chris Knight, uh, the hermit, uh, his hermitage was in central Maine and he also grew up in central Maine, maybe about 30 miles away as the crow flies and did come from, again, was blessed with intelligence and the ability to solve problems and also was raised in a, a family in which um, independence and the ability to not just y- gain knowledge, but also to y- apply it in a practical way. He was taught when he was young how to fix everything from electrical to automotive to plumbing. They, You mentioned this greenhouse. The family had very little money and they studied like hydrodynamics. And they built this homemade greenhouse in their backyard. They buried hundreds of one-gallon water jugs, plastic water jugs, just below the surface of the soil filled with water. Water molecules are what scientists sometimes call sticky. They gather heat during the day and release it at night. And in this method, in their greenhouse with these water jugs, they could literally grow vegetables all winter long in Maine without paying a dime to the electric company. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like this is the kind of family he grew up in. So he was able to rig and figure out many things. Some people mention uh, this, you know, the hermit I wrote about his name, Chris Knight. Some people mention another Chris to me, Chris McCandless of of Into the Wild fame. And I actually didn't even mention Chris McCandless in the book, although, of course, I read Into the Wild and thought it was excellent. But Chris McCandless did not survive one winter. He died after four months and I think also had sort of a different a different approach to this, but it was sort of Chris Knight's ability to figure things out that not only allowed him to survive, but really thrive. He, you know, we'll talk about this later, which is the the big question isn't how, but I think maybe
0: why? Yeah.
1: Why. We'll get to that. But Chris Knight didn't just survive, he thrived. He really was healthy, strong, and able to sort of build an entire life from him for himself out of this little clearing in the woods.
0: So really quickly, because this show is supported by REI, I'm really curious about the gear you found in his tent. And then I want to talk about why, but like how, like what sort of pieces of gear were essentials for him? And I know he read a ton of books. So books were one thing. There are also flashlights. What else?
1: Yeah, I am a big fan of gear. When I walk through REI, it's like uh, it is, (laughs) The proverbial kid in a candy store. Yes. I have gear lust. But as I think even the big wigs at REI would admit, it's not the gear that makes you a good outdoors person. Of course, it helps, but it's really the knowledge and the know how and the ability. And Chris had that in spades. Now, as for his gear, he was pretty, you know, he relied on stealing things from people's cabins, including some Aria gear for sure. I saw, I I noted a bunch them I think at (laughs) least, uh, at least one sleeping bag, but he, he had, he he was incapable of throwing things away. Like I remember like finding this bent, I went out to his site where he lived. And by the way, it is absolutely an amazing campsite on private property. So I can't really give too much, too many instructions here. But like I found this bent key sort of like tied to a tree. He used like tree trunks as a sort of storage unit. He would tie a rope there and tuck things into these storage units. And I was like, this bent key, what was that? And, you know, Chris Knight said to me in one of his... You know, it was one of his jail interviews. He's like, well, I couldn't really throw anything away. Bent Key, you could open a can with it. You could pry something up. Maybe you could use it as a screwdriver. Who knows? It was a good tool. So he was able to use almost anything. That said, he built himself a shelter out of like random tarps and plastic garbage bags. Yes, these are not REI products. And it was completely waterproof. He used to prevent water from pooling under his tent and to make the floor absolutely flat after reading magazines especially his favorite one to use as a flooring was National Geographic he would get these 1 foot high stacks of magazines tie them together with uh, electrical tape which he stole and bury them below the surface of his camp and that made a very flat floor and then when it rained it it added to the drainage he didn't even have a very good stove so it, it, you know it, in terms of being an advertisement for REI I think Chris Knight serves as a, an example of someone who's it's the proof that the gear helps, but the head is yeah. really what you
0: but need. he had rope. Like that was one thing I noticed. He had rope, he had books, he had flashlights, he had light, he had tarps.
1: Right. And but what what he mostly had was stubbornness. <laughs> Uh, toughness and uh mental acuity where he would you know is able to think these things out. I don't even think you know I, I I don't even think his clothing was that great. You know, I think it was like you know cotton kills is the old expression, but I think he had like a lot of sweatpants and things like that. Not that high-tech of gear. I think he oh, would cool. have thrived on that, but he was he was a thief, yes, but also had this sort of code of conduct when thieving. One of his codes was he would never break into an occupied home. These were always summer cabins, mostly closed for the season. And two, he would never kick in a door, or break a window. And three, he would never really steal anything of great value. Like if someone had a very nice REI jacket and then sort of an older, cheaper jacket, he would always go for the older, cheaper one because he didn't really want to take the most valuable possessions from a particular house. It was a very odd one-sided relationship. Uh, One of the things I do love about this story, one of the many things, is the people's reactions to this guy. There were many people who owned cabins that were broken into and some thought he was... They detested him and other people sort of figured out that, you know, when your jewelry is still there and your television and your computer and your cash and all that's missing is your hamburger meat and your Stephen King novel, you sort of get the idea that this guy wasn't really going for valuables and, and people sort of quietly respected him. And there was this sort of myth built up around him where some people, like I said, were absolutely offended and some people were like, yeah, it sounds like we have a hermit out here. And it was, it was fascinating, the, the range of reactions
0: you kind of like love the guy. I mean, there's a lot to like about him. I mean, the fact that he stole was a bummer and he was really ashamed of it. You talk about too, but you know what? I think we got to talk about the why, like what was the biggest thing you learned about why and about humanity's desire to be kind of alone in the woods, but at the same time, our terrifying fear of it.
1: Yeah. We really humans, as you mentioned, uh, Shelby are very social creatures. in fact, I think you said that we all have a desire to go off alone in the woods, but I think maybe you you left out half that thing for like a couple of hours. Yeah, for like a few hours, exactly. Or or, or like a weekend. And and by the way, everybody out there, it's funny, I I spent a lot of time researching crazy tangents here. And there is actually a scientific explanation for why. If if you've never noticed that you feel like just happier and more relaxed in the woods, that is not a myth. Uh, All of our senses, our sight, our smell, our hearing really were aligned with, you know, we spent 99% of human existence or when we basically lived as hunter gatherers, everything was sort of developed when we were living in the African Savannah or in the woods. And so every, all of our senses remain calibrated to being out in the woods and sort of where we want to be. No senses, you know, evolution is slow and, and technological revolution is quickly. N- none of our senses really are, uh, are aligned to be like, you know, in the middle of a busy city with honking horns and car alarms that, you know, if you if it rattles you, it should, it's supposed to. So Chris Knight. you know, the very first question I had, of course, was why? Why would a 20-year-old kid, a smart 20-year-old kid, even an introverted 20-year-old kid, why would you leave the world so profoundly? He, you know, you, there's one thing about being, you know, being shy and staying most of the time at home, etc. but this is such a complete escape from the world. And why? And, and of course, I, I asked him that question. And As with many hermits in history, he didn't have the greatest answer, but I'll tell you what he said. And I think there is some profoundness in it. You know, he told me that uh, when he was in high school and even younger, he never, ever, ever felt comfortable around other people. You know, I asked him if he had like committed a crime or if he had, you know, if there was abuse in his home, something that would allow him to run. And he's like, no. And and by the way, that doesn't keep you away for 27 years. He said he felt, I think he described it as a gravitational pull to be by himself and other writers from Thoreau on down have mentioned very similar things this deep desire to be alone. And when he was 20 years old, and I remember being 20 years old, sometimes you could just say, you know, what the heck I'm going to risk everything to do my, to fulfill my greatest desire. And in fact, people that don't, uh, I think Chris Knight probably lived up to his biggest dreams more fully than most of us ever will. And he, at 20 years old, drove his car, Subaru Brat, to the edge of Moosehead Lake, the largest lake in Maine, dropped the keys in the center console. And with very little supplies, no map, no compass, walked into the woods and stayed away for 27 years. So he left because he never felt comfortable being around other people. But the better question is, not why did you leave, but why did you stay? Mm. And the answer to that, where I find very profound, is that he stayed because he was happy. He really loved the life he built for himself. Now, you mentioned that he was Ashamed about the stealing, and that is true. But for the most part, he discovered. I mean, what is it? You know, what what are we all searching, searching for? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. He found a place in the woods, the place that made him feel most content in all the world. He found ultimate liberty and ultimate happiness. He he probably he expressed more happiness to me about his life than almost everyone I meet
0: mm. out
1: here in the regular world. And so he stayed because he was happy. It's as simple and profound as that. You know?
0: Yeah, there was a part either in one of your talks or the book where you said, like, he felt most alive at 3.30 in the morning walking around his campsite staying alive in the freezing cold. Did I make that up or is that somewhat No, true? no, I mean
1: that's basically it. When You know, it, it, I, I think there's, a, there's an expression in my family, uh Finkel family here where I've spent a lot of time outdoors, but I think it's my sister's expression. She's even a much more accomplished outdoorsman than me, where she said, I think her, her, her phrase was, you don't have to have fun to have fun. Meaning that, that in suffering is this kernel of ultimate aliveness when you feel most connected to the world. And yeah, he suffered a lot. He was very cold. He was very hungry, although he said he was never for an instant, lonely, lonely, or bored. It's very fascinating to talk to him. And I, in this interview, I'm not capturing the poetry of his voice, but I tried to do it in the book. And you know, he said he didn't even understand the concept of loneliness. He was utterly content to 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 be by himself. And in fact, what he said was not that he never felt lonely. In fact, he felt the opposite of that. He said he felt utterly and completely connected to like everything in the universe, which sounds quite stoner dorm room conversation ish. <laughs> <laughs> but many other people who've spent significant time alone have said the same thing, like where his body ended and the forest begun sort of dissolved. And it, it, if you it, I spent a lot of time reading books written by hermits, Chris Knight would never write a book because he, he's not that kind of person. But this sort of boundary, like sort of dissolving the sort of loss of self identity and the sort of connection with everything is repeated over and over again, from, you know, monks, religious monks to artistic solitude seekers to people like like Thoreau, it's this feeling of infinite connectivity rather than aloneness, which is bizarre. Yeah. very few of us, almost none of us will ever dare to experience something like that because it requires an immense amount of time alone and as we said we 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 want to be alone but just for a couple hours then we want to go back to our video games
0: so i want to talk a little bit about you because the fact that you got this story is big you wrote him a letter not just any letter but you you wrote him a letter handwritten and then you included a national geographic article you wrote was it about the H- Hudzu tribe or how do i say that yeah the Hadza tribe the Hadza
1: of uh, the yeah i've been along been interested in people that uh, you know live no lives are uninfluenced by modern life, by modern technology, but as, 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 as lightly influenced as possible.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, Michael dives deeper into his relationship with adventure and also gives advice to writers. This episode was brought to you by REI Co-op, a brand that's big on protecting where we play outside. As stewards of the outdoors, REI gives away 70% of all profits back to the outdoors. Since 1976, REI has invested more than $77 million through partner nonprofits to help create, improve, and sustain access for all to inspiring outdoor places. They're also eco-friendly. They use 100% renewable energy to operate and they built the first largest and most sustainable net zero energy and LED platinum distribution center in the country. On top of that, they've partnered with over 66 brands in the outdoor industry to enhance the sustainability of their products. Their motto, a life outdoors is a life well lived is one I definitely stand by. Learn more, take classes, go on experiences, Find a store near you and get the gear you want to get outside at REI.com. It sounds like you've always been, you know, in your journalism career, read read a bunch of your stories from, you know, know, I know you got fired from the Times for that story about the coffee plantations in West Africa where you took, you know, the characters of shy teens and made it one composite character. There's a story you did about three teens at sea off the islands between New Zealand and Hawaii who survived for 51 days at sea in a fishing boat. You know, the story about the guy who stole your name. I mean, all these stories are kind of about adventure and survival. So what's your relationship with with adventure?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I've had a, uh, I mean, I don't think there's anybody who hasn't had ups and downs in their lives and in their career. I am absolutely 100% human, and that means I'm absolutely flawed. You mentioned, yeah, I did... uh, at about 15, maybe 18 years ago at this point, did get fired for my wonderful job at the New York Times Magazine for writing what's called a composite character, combining several interviews together into one, which is against the rules of journalism. I wanna emphasize that uh, everything I'm saying here tonight is not just true, but has been thoroughly and completely fact-checked. The book itself is so hard to believe it was essential for me that everything be correct. If I was 99% sure of something, I didn't put it in the book. That wasn't good enough. So yeah, as I I think I mentioned at the outset that it's, uh, I'm a spoiled brat in that I get to (laughs) write and make my living by poking into things I'm just genuinely naturally curious about. It's, as I mentioned, uh, it was hard to tell where Chris Knight ended and the forest began with me. There's really it's similar like I don't know where I started. My job, you know, c- commences like it's part of my DNA. And so, yeah, I when you were mentioning some stories, I'm like, yeah, I'm fascinated by that. I am you know, I don't really think of themes. But yeah, you're basically if there was any, it would be regular people, not celebrities mm-hmm. or billionaires, just regular people doing or involved in or sometimes accidentally involved in. Absolutely incredible outlier things, lost at sea. Uh, One of the stories that touched me most was about a man who was blind who taught himself echolocation like a bat. I'm not kidding, and rode a mountain bike around echo locating like a bat, you would think that would just be impossible. And he proved, I mean, this, this guy was so skilled that there were people who didn't believe he was blind. I watched him take out his prosthetic eyeballs and confirm he's blind. And it's like, sometimes it's wow. just the most, humans are amazing. And in this case, the Chris Knight has one of the most, uh, first of all, it's one of the longest solitudes you, you can find in all of history. And secondly, it's one of the most amazing survival stories. You combine them together and add in true crime and the fact that this guy affected other people's lives, some negatively, some positively. It's sort of, it's like a catnip for journalists. Dude. It, this story really grabbed me. And then Chris Knight himself, you mentioned that you felt warmly towards him. I feel warmly towards him, but not everyone does and they're not wrong. You know, some people say, well, this guy's just a lazy man who didn't want to work and stole from other people. And I'm like, when people tell me that, I, 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 I don't feel the same, but I, I can't say that they're wrong. And I actually like the fact that Chris Knight inspires very wide variety of reac- reactions. And sometimes how you feel about Chris Knight seems to say maybe more about you than it does about him.
0: Mm. So what's your relationship with, with adventure? Did you grow up camping? or I mean, you, you lived in Bozeman for a lot of your life. Tell me a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, I'm speaking to you now from uh, outside of Exxon Provence in southern France, where nice. I have decamped with my wife and three kids. But I spent 27 years <laughs> living in Bozeman, Montana. I'm all three of my children were born in Bozeman Deaconess Hospital, and you know, Bozeman is one of the outdoor epicenters of the United States. And you know, as I as I mentioned before, I never really like scientifically delved into it. But I just knew that when I was in the wilderness, something about me felt great. Mm. And uh, why not pursue something that makes you feel great with a capital G underlined, bold, italicized. And so so like climbing mountains and skiing and mountain biking and just walking in the woods and Bozeman, I always felt like I was in the worst shape and the least skilled. And then I left Bozeman and realized I actually was in great shape and pretty skilled, but it's just like, it's such a high level yeah. there. That's it's, 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 it's not quite bolder, but it's uh we can, we're like little bolder, you know, it, it really, it really, I learned, I learned from very, very, very accomplished uh, outdoors people, men, women, young, old, one of my first people I went mountain biking with was like 50 years old when I was 20 and just schooled me and just understood everything. And so it's, it was a great Fortunate, lovely sort of uh, graduate school of the outdoors as Bozeman is.
0: Yeah, we've had on Florence Williams who wrote the Nature Fix, which proves that being outside in nature just makes you happier, healthier, more productive. So I, appreciate- I like that book, and yeah.
1: I, I like Florence. I like Florence also. She's yeah, very talented.
0: She's super cool. So, so any advice to? Well, first of all, let's go back, France. What are you doing now? Like, what's the next thing you're working on? Can you talk about it? Sure. I
1: am working on a story about a art thief, a person who stole many, many artworks from museums and just hung them in his home. We'll see if it becomes a book. And I can't say too much more about it, I except like he it. doesn't speak he doesn't speak English. So uh, and I'm fortunate enough that I speak a little bad French. And so we're working on it that way.
0: Nice. Any advice to writers, especially writers who want to write about outliers and adventure?
1: Man, find a different job. No, I'm thinking <laughs>
0: <laughs> I agree. But don't be a pick, writer. It's such a hard pick up, lifestyle. Pick up a
1: camera. Everyone watches TV these days. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like I've been in the writing is a is is challenging, but it's also I'm so fortunate that I get to do this for my living.
0: Except for I I think you're being way too humble because what you do is really hard. I mean, you spent three years writing this guy back and forth, going to jail, thousands of letters, like. All of your stories involve work. So like, let's not, let's not paint a picture that this is an easy job. Like, yes, you're lucky, but you've made it happen. So maybe you can talk about like, how do you do it?
1: That's very kind of you, and I don't like it when people humble brag or pretend not to be that. But I honestly and deeply feel that, uh, every uh, or especially in the United States, maybe here in France, people don't work so hard, which is one of the reasons I like it. But lots of people (laughs) work hard in the United States. If you're an auto mechanic and you work 15 hours a day fixing cars, which several of my friends do, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean you're you know you work harder than me, frankly. Mm -hmm. So I don't really, hard work is just endemic to um, the American psyche, so I, Mm -hmm. I discount that, and I really do feel that. I know many, many people that in their hearts and in their souls wanted to be a writer and didn't have the luck or the good fortune or the good timing. You know, I was generally interested in outdoor adventure just as outdoor adventure became this huge subject. There was not when I started, I'm almost 50 years old, by the way, when I started Outside Magazine wasn't in business and Outside Magazine and Men's Journal and National Geographic Adventure. And so I was very fortunate. It's not, nothing happens in a vacuum. And, and
0: I don't know. What was the question again? (laughs) (laughs) What does it really take to be a writer? That's really what I want to know. Like any advice to others. Yeah,
1: I'll tell you exactly what it takes to be a writer. You better read a lot. You better write a lot. You better have great editors. You should take risks, but not stupidly. Mm. You should find your own voice, but that is so much harder to do than it sounds. I feel like everything I wrote when I was in my 20s or younger, I knew exactly what book I had read just before I wrote it because oh look, you could tell you were reading Hemingway there. Those are those Hemingway rhythms. Look, you switched, uh, you know, you switched to Steinbeck there, and now look, you were, must have been, you must have been reading someone else there. Like it, you sort of, it takes a while to find your own form, and as you did mention, writing it, like almost anything else does take. Work And if you say you go to a coffee shop and write, then I'm like, what do you do for a living, though? Maybe, um, you know, I'm, I sit down and, and I work. I spend a lot of time chasing dead ends and writing letters that don't get answered and people not wanting to talk to me. And that's part of the job. And uh, there is a little bit of a grind to it. And so one of the things that's kind of bizarrely nice about the writing business being so challenging these days, uh, I think hundreds and hundreds of paying good paying magazines have gone out of business in the last couple of decades, uh, is that if you don't really like it, if you're not really obsessed, you're going to quit and become a lawyer or some other job that's just so much less uh hassle-y. You know, I, I, yeah. I've never had, I've had health insurance and I got a wife and three kids. I mean, I buy it myself, but no one's ever offered it to me. And, uh, I can't tell you how many times people say to me, um, Oh, will you write this article for my website and I'll pay you with putting it on the website.
0: <laughs> I get, I get offered surfboards sometimes. I'm like, Oh, my landlord does not take surfboards.
1: Right. Right. I would like to say to my dentist. Will you, you know, will you uh, clean my teeth and I'll put a big thank you on the internet for you in exchange for that? You know, it's like, it's not going to really work. So (laughs) awesome.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I think that's good advice. You have to read a lot. You have to write a lot and you have to be okay. Like chasing dead ends that maybe don't always pan out, but it sounds like I love the chase. It sounds like you kind of like the chase a lot as well. And you have to like that hustle. You know, what books do you recommend, especially for adventurers?
1: It's not the necessarily the subject that really—I mean, obviously there are certain subjects that appeal yeah. to me—but it's the writing style. Let's see what names just jump. You know, I didn't prepare for this. Uh, like Susan Arlene, who writes for The New Yorker. She wrote possibly the love most love her book is the or- Orchid Thief, which became an adaptation of the movie. She has such a very beautiful style of writing. I don't think it's high adventure, but it feels like it. Uh, Mm -hmm. She, her New Yorker pieces, I think she wrote a book about Rin Tin Tin and things like that. I I recommend her highly. There's a person who is quite old and maybe not as well known as he should be. His name is John McPhee, M small C, P-H-E-E, who was really one of my pole stars. He's, I would start, if you've never read a John McPhee book, first of all, Oh, man, I wish I'd never read one so I could read them for the first time and be like exploded. My head exploded. I would read Coming Into the Country about his going down a river in Alaska. And it's sort of as beautiful as any literature and as detailed and well-researched as as anything. Um, And, I, you know, David Grand's latest book, Killers of the Flower Moon. And I think there's – oh, even John Branch just came out with a book, The Last Cowboys. There's some really beautiful nonfiction adventure stuff being written. And I, I just say, find a person whose voice appeals to you. And that and, and that's it. And, you know, I spend a lot of time, my between flight activity, by the way, I don't know if everybody has their thing. Some people have, I go to the bookstore and like read the first page of like hundreds of books. And then when I find myself b- being unable to put the book back on the shelf, that's the one mm. I end up buying. And so, you, you know, the subject sometimes is the thing that catches me, but it's usually the writing and, and adventure to me can mean almost anything uh you know war to me is like has elements of you know venture life and death and it's even more real uh, i uh i very rarely read what i call white guys in cortex books anymore it's more <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh i love this awesome that's hilarious um okay i, w- I really got to ask you though like how do you sell a book or any advice about optioning your book to like you know brad pitt and having jonah hill play you i mean that that's a pretty big win <laughs>
1: Well, first of all, be obsessed with the subject and the topic. And it's very competitive, but there are, you know, the the thing is, it's like nobody, nobody runs. It's like running a marathon. Nobody writes 200 pages, but you can write one page 200 times. Nobody runs 26 miles, but I can do one mile 26 times. you got to break it down into, into chewable parts, you know, or else you're just going to lose your mind. Like I'm going to write a book now. I'm just going to write the first page. And then I'll write the second page. We'll worry about the third page next week. So if you break it down into its little parts, like Here's the way a book is done. If you really want a little nuts and bolts, just briefly, find a topic that you're obsessed with that pretty much only you can do great. So if I came up with an idea, say, about this crisis in Syria where I've never been, I don't think I could sell that book. There's so many reporters that have spent that much time there, but I spent all this and everybody has an expertise. Even if you live in the middle of Kansas, there's got to be like some weird little mountain that's 700 feet tall that you've climbed 800,000 times. or some just little, like, you start with something that you know better than almost anyone else. And then write a bunch of pages about it, but not a, not a 500, but like 20. And you could take those 20 pages. And this is the way if you really want to write a successful book, as opposed to Taking the great risks of self-publishing, which can lead to success, but mostly leads to losing a few dollars. Find an agent, which is someone who represents you. You can send those 20 pages to someone. I'm ha- Get in touch with me through my website, michaelfinkel.com. Ask for my agent's name. If you have 20 pages, I'll just give it to you. He, he can reject you if he doesn't like it. Find an agent. He'll be like, this is great or this sucks. If he says it's great... Then you'll probably have to write another 30 pages and then you have 50 pages and then you write a little outline. Then you have a book proposal. Then you go to publishing companies and you pitch that proposal and you hope like hell, one or two of those companies want to buy it. They toss you a couple of shekels and uh, you have uh, enough money to live on for the next year or so that it takes you to write that book and you hope it's a damn good book. And then you have to get lucky that someone else thinks so too. I hope I wasn't both. I, I was probably both depressing and
0: no, that was awesome. I've talked to so many writers. This was great advice, and I think it'll benefit a lot of listeners. You know, We ask all of our guests if you could go back and tell your fifteen year old self one piece of advice, what would you tell them? Well,
1: except for don't make a composite character uh, i would uh I'm actually uh shockingly surprised about the roller coastery ride of my career and how, and how it's ended up. I would say watch even less television and spend even more time outside to my 15 year old self. And, and really, it it really wasn't worth playing those Atari video games. So I don't, I don't know what everyone's playing Fortnite now, although there's something funny because every once in a while, somebody asks me, you know, what are your favorite inventions or tools? And I'm like, "Uh, my favorite two things are the internet and television because they keep so many people out of my forest. So continue watching television and go stay on the Internet and play all the Fortnite you want. Uh, it would be great to keep you out of my forest. I'm joking, obviously, but uh, but there's a part of us, little a little sarcastic survival bit of me that's like, fine, uh, I'm happy that, that everyone's indoors, killing well, each other virtually.
0: I really appreciate everything you've talked about. You know, I think the fact that you talked about a mistake you made, which actually ended up leading to an amazing story in a film that got optioned by Brad Pitt, was it's really cool that you're so open and honest about all of it. Thank you for your work. You know, if you could throw one party, who's coming? What are we eating? It just gives me an idea of like who you are. Where are we? What are we doing?
1: Well, my close friends are going to come and you know, I like a movable feast as Hemingway once said. Uh, let's make a party that's on a raft going through the Grand Canyon for two weeks. And so we're moving. And yet it's not too, you know, every once in a while we'll have to batten down the hatches and have a high spike of adrenaline. and We'll take a few side hikes. And I'm taking my five closest friends and asking them, to each bring a person that they think is fantastic. I don't know. I just made that up on the spot, but that's what I really want. I'm ready to it. go right now. I'm ready to go right now. I've 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 never gone through the Grand Canyon, by the way. So this is like this great gap in my life. I can't believe I've never floated the Grand Canyon, but I I want to so badly, and I want to make it a I want to make it a a floating party, meaning that great conversation. We're gonna bring some good wine. I'm bringing my wine from France. We're gonna cook some good dinners, and who knows? We're gonna stay up super late and get up really early and love it.
0: I love that. And if you could have a like banner that goes off the raft and has a message to the world, what's that message right now?
1: If you can't decide between two things, do them both.
0: Michael Finkel, you're amazing. Thank you so much. We'll have links on where to buy Stranger in the Woods and all of your other books as well. You can go to michaelfinkel.com, listen to his talks. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you to Michael. Thank you to all of you writing kick ass reviews on Apple Podcasts. They mean a ton. Thank you to all of you for living out your wildest ideas. If you like this show, tell a friend or 10. Remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week. We have on Aspen Mattis.